Well, as we come to worship together today, uh, we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, both in your life group studies, through Bible Studies for Life, and uh, through the message today as I introduce that to you. Now, I think there's several things we need to uh, consider and remember as we uh, come to look at the Seventh Commandment today. And that is, as we've gone through this review of the Ten Commandments, and it's been a great review of these Ten Commandments, uh, that, that we realize that God did not sugarcoat these words in any way, but he directed them uh, to our lives because of the reality of where we live and how we live. He gave these to his children, the Israelites, as they were leaving out of captivity in Egypt to go to the promised land. And he gave them to them to establish the values and, and the morals of a, of a new way of governing themselves that would be totally different from when they lived on the captivity in Egypt. And God did not sugarcoat these words. It sounds like he would be saying them exactly, writing them exactly for us today in our culture today, right? So rather than sugarcoating and making them easy, it kind of hits us like a two by four in the face to get our attention. And then like a skilled surgeon, he begins to carve and cut out the disease area of our life with these commandments. Second thing I think we need to remember about these commandments are that uh, they don't earn us a right relationship with God. Uh, the Israelites' salvation out of captivity in Egypt uh, to the freedom in the promised land was a gift from God. It was their salvation as they were delivered from captivity into freedom. And the same thing is true for us. Out of the captivity and bondage and darkness of sin, we are delivered not by our works and by obedience to these commandments, but by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary. So we need to remember that. They don't earn us a position in the kingdom of God, but we want to keep them as kingdom people for the glory of God. And then the third thing I think we always need to remember is that as long as we live in a fallen imperfect world like we live in today, as wonderful as it is, as great as it is, and beautiful as it is, especially during this fall season, where we see God's handiwork all around us, we have to remember that we still do battle with Satan and his tempting us. And we will fall to some temptations. We will sin. That's our human nature. Now, that's not to say you just get a a, a, a pass from keeping the Ten Commandments but that you're supposed to keep these Ten Commandments because we live in this fallen culture and society today. And remember that Satan is constantly going to be on his work, on his job, trying to deceive us and to destroy us. So we come to the seventh commandment today. And again, in the Hebrew, it would be found in two words that would simply say, no adultery. But in our text for today, and in most all translations, it takes at least five words for that. So when we look at uh, Exodus 20, verse 14, thinking about uh, keeping the, the sacredness of marriage alive, he, we hear that God says to us in verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You see how relevant that is for our culture today? We are a sexually oriented society. Sex sells, and we know that. Look at all the advertisements and the way they entice us with that. But yet God's commandment teaches us that honoring the marriage commitment 
by not committing adultery is one of the basic values for marriage, for home, for church, and for society expressed through sexual purity. Uh, this is a rather interesting footnote about all this. In, in 1631, in the year 1631, there was an edition of the King James Bible that went out that was known as the Wicked Bible. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it? The Wicked Bible. Any of you ever heard of that and why it's called the Wicked Bible? Well, it seems like somehow in the printing of that Bible, a very important word in verse 14 and that commandment was left out. Can you imagine which word it was? The word not. So that Bible was printed and the seventh commandment said, thou shalt commit adultery. Now, a lot of people like that, but the mistake was caught and was corrected and we have it correct now. It seems like our culture would live, lives today by that commandment of the wicked Bible, doesn't it? Thou shalt commit adultery. It's reflected everywhere. In the area of entertainment and movies and television and real life all around us. So we need to consider carefully what God says to us about the sacredness of marriage and about how we keep marriage sacred by observing and keeping this seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so what do we find here? What do we, what do we address from this mandate just simply to say, Practice sexual purity that, and marriage. That, that, that's the bottom line of that. But I think we need to understand more about the framework around that. And I think we do so by going back to Genesis chapter 2. And here we look at, first of all, the plan for marriage or God's plan for marriage. What does Genesis 2 say to us, verses 20 through 24? So the man, that's Adam, uh, gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. And then we hear these familiar words in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now that's God's plan for marriage. First of all, it speaks to us about the priority of marriage. God saw that Adam was alone. He needed a helpmate, and we're reminded in God's providing a woman, Eve, for Adam, that that's part of marriage, and the marriage relationship is for fulfillment and completion and companionship in life with a marriage partner, to where you share life at its deepest levels of intimacy. And that's not just in sex, but it's also in emotions. And everything that you share together in that process of becoming one. And so we find that the priority of marriage is the highest priority except for your commitment to God alone. 
NIV translates this. It says, talks about uh, leave and, and be united to his wife. One of the ways that we hear it most often is to leave and cleave. We like it because it rhymes. That you break the relationship with your parents or your family and you cleave or you're united to your spouse. And that's the priority for marriage. Then we see that God talks about the permanence of marriage. In verse 24, he talks about that, being, being then cleaving to his wife or being united with his wife. And the, and the word is accurately translated united because it really talks about like gluing together for all eternity, gluing together even in a stronger bond than super glue. That, that it is our gorilla glue. But it is, it's a powerful force that unites a man and a woman. And remember that by biblical standards, it's a man and a woman united in marriage. And we are held together by God. We do all the work we can to build our marriage and to make it what we want it to be and what God wants it to be. But ultimately, it is God who binds us together in this process of marriage. And then we see the purpose of marriage in verse 24, that we will become one flesh. Now, that's talking about the sexual union between a man and a woman and how sacred it is because that's intimacy at one of the deepest levels. But that's not all that it talks about. It talks about the man and the woman in the marriage relationship becoming one emotionally and spiritually as well as physically. Now, in our culture today, a lot of people would laugh at this and say that's absolutely ridiculous. How do you expect to find sexual fulfillment and all the enjoyment in it by one partner in life for a lifetime as you go through life and your age and all of that? And you look around the culture and it says, why not try something else every now and then? Interesting that a family research, the Family Research Council of Washington, D.C., in a study most recently discovered that the most likely to have a high degree of satisfaction with their current sexual life are not those who practice sex outside of marriage or who are not married and practicing life as a, sex as a single, but those who are in marriage and who are committed to one relationship in marriage and to the sexual purity of their marriage, which means no sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Now, do you marvel at that? Why would you be surprised that God's plan works the way that he's intended for it to work? So we see here the priority of marriage and how we're to live in that marriage relationship. And when God loves you and you know that, and he says to you, you shall not commit adultery, God's not trying to keep sex from you. But he's trying to keep sex for you as his wonderful gift to be enjoyed within marriage. You see, God had the idea for sex long before we did. It's his idea. It's his gift to us. Now, you, you might be thinking, okay, here we are today and we're talking about sex and we're talking about marriage. What does it have to say to our younger generation? It says to them, at whatever level you are as a young adult, as a youth, as a child, you need to hear what God's word says. And you need to begin to mold your character and your values around these words of God. 
Because if you disobey these, you don't incorporate them into your life. As you grow, then you won't probably incorporate them into your life in marriage. So you need to hear these as young as you can and begin to live by those and say, this is the standard that God has set for me, and I'm going to live by that standard. Now, one of the strongest words about marriage and keeping it pure sexual is found in Hebrews 13, 4, where the writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God places great priority upon marriage, and we need to do the same thing as well. Then that takes us to a second thing of looking at today, and that is what we would call then the peril of adultery. What's so wrong with adultery? You know, why are we supposed to not practice sex outside of the marriage relationship? Not before marriage and not after marriage, but only in marriage. Well, let's look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. We had some technical difficulties earlier with the screen projector. I hope it's working now so you can see the scripture. But in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, under the title, Living to Please God, we find these words. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you more in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen. Now, those are interesting words, aren't they? And the main teaching there is it says to us that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. Immorality means any sexual immorality, whether before or during marriage. Now, here's a strong word to you. If you are married... And you are sexually active with somebody who is not your spouse. Then you are violating God's command and you are sinning against God. You need to get out of that relationship. The seventh commandment also speaks to you if you are not married and you are sexually active. You are sinning against God's law or his command or his standard For you, and you need to stop that. Get out of those relationships. Why? Because that's not God's intended plan, and it cheapens life and marriage. It cheapens life and marriage. So let's do a little bit deeper thinking today about adultery. And let's do so by talking about three types of adultery. First of all, let's think about the physical adultery. That's what most of us think about. That's what really the Bible addresses here so strongly. And that is physical adultery. It's voluntary sexual involvement between a married person and someone other than his or her spouse. And again, I remind you that the primary objective of this commandment is to protect the sacredness and value the sacredness of the marriage relationship. 
So first of all, it's talking about physical adultery, the actual act of sex outside the bonds of marriage. Then secondly, there's what we can call mental adultery. And that's where some of you might be sitting there thinking, okay, just like murder last week, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm okay with that one. I haven't committed adultery. I'm good with this one. Well, are you really? Because Jesus addressed that issue about it mentally. When he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's mental adultery. That's where you get an image in your mind. And you think about that image. And that image takes you to that level of spiritual adultery. Now... Don't, 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 don't take this thought to a deeper level and say, okay, if I've done that thinking and lusting in my mind and Jesus says that I've already committed adultery, well, then I might as well go ahead and do the act of adultery as well. That's not interpreting the scriptures right. That's interpreting it your way, not God's way. He's wanting you to stop that thinking. That's why the Bible talks to us so much about be transformed in your mind and the way that you think. Because the way that you think controls how you act. Okay. So we talked about physical adultery, mental adultery. And then there is what we would call emotional, emotional adultery. That's where a a man and a woman begin to live in marriage like roommates rather than as loving spouses. They live separate lives. You see, one of the other deepest intimate levels of marriage is that, that it is the level of, of emotional ties that you build together in that lifelong process of becoming one. It's where the level of emotional vulnerability you share, some of the deepest thoughts and feelings and hurts and regrets and concerns that you have about life and about your life and about the marriage and about children and about the future and retirement and life and whether we take this job and all of those kinds of things and move and, you know, and and when you don't have that strong marital relationship, you begin to drift apart and you become emotionally detached from your spouse and regrettably you become emotionally attached to somebody else. It might be somebody at work. It might be somebody you meet at the coffee pot or the, or the water cooler. Or it might be somebody that, that you're put together with a lot of times in meetings or committee works or all of those kinds of things. It's one of the dangers the Internet has given to us. A lot of people have fallen to adultery because they've hooked up online emotionally to begin with with somebody from the past or with somebody else who's struggling with that same kind of roommate syndrome with their spouse. And you bond emotionally. And that's a type of adultery. And that's often how physical adultery begins, with those types of adultery in mind. Now, let's think about the peril of adultery. Why is it so bad? Why does God not want us to sample sex outside of marriage? The Bible talks about the peril of adultery, I think, for three different reasons. Number one is because the peril of adultery includes destruction. 
It includes destruction. Proverbs 5 and 6 talks a lot about this. It's a part of that wisdom literature. And in Proverbs 6.32, we read these words. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment, and whoever does so destroys himself. How is that destruction brought about? Well, how, how do we see it? It destroys your marriage relationship. It destroys trust. It destroys that deepest level of emotional involvement, the sacredness of the sexual act between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Sometimes it, and it destroys your reputation. All of that, all of those things are involved in adultery. It's not just a, a simple act between two people that can be kept secret and nobody will know and nobody gets hurt. Doesn't work that way. It is destructive in every kind of way that you can think. Secondly, the peril of adultery includes shame and regret. Always shame and regret because it always comes somewhere in that process. As you are confronted with it, as you are found out about it, or as you come finally, you can't bear it any longer and you confess it. In the Proverbs 5, 11 through 14, you got some words there on the scripture. Write them down if you're just taking notes. But the last one, verse 14 says, I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. That's where somebody who is guilty talks about the shame and regret. And then there's the social and spiritual consequences. You know, we, we, we live in relationship with God through a covenant. We live in relationship in marriage with our partner in life through a covenant. Marriage is a covenant relationship until death do you part. Until death do you part. And so one way that God makes a relationship with us is through Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and died for our sins. Another way he makes that covenant relationship with us is when he binds us together through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the intimacy level in marriage then is another way in which he binds us together with, with our spouse. It's a deep binding attraction. It's powerful. But it has social and spiritual consequences to it. In Proverbs 6, 27 through 29, just think about this image. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? You think about where the lap is and where those coals go, those hot coals go. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. There are social and spiritual consequences. Well, how is it socially a big deal? We see it all around us in the culture today. And it's been a problem since the beginning of time. What is supposedly we hear all the time was the oldest, uh, the oldest uh, profession. Prostitution, right? So we've, it's always been around. You know, always be careful when you talk about, we need to go back to the good old days. We need to go back to the very beginning. There were problems with sin back there. You can't escape that. It's just more prevalent today. You got more ways of broadcasting it than you ever had before. But you see, marriage is a building block of the society that God intends to be built. 
Now think about that. The world is made up of nations, and nations are made up of states, and states are made up of cities, and cities are made up of communities, and communities are made up of families, and families begin with marriage. And when marriage is destroyed, the social society becomes vulnerable to destruction. Then also spiritual consequences. One of the greatest examples, you find Joseph, not the, not the, the stepfather of Jesus, but Joseph back in Egypt in captivity. And he's in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife wants him and she pursues him. And this is before the Ten Commandments were even given. And Joseph said, how could I do this evil and sin against God? Isn't that amazing that that was his concept about the marriage relationship that it was sacred back then, even before God said, you shall not commit adultery? And then after the Ten Commandments were given, and David's fall, I think that's part of your study this day in, in, in your life groups about David. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, looking in the wrong direction, and he saw the wrong thing, and he did the wrong thing. But when David was finally confronted with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then you see all the destruction that followed after that through his family, how all that rape and incest and everything like that fell into his family, it just followed him through that. But when David finally was, was confronted with his sin in Psalm 51, he cried out and he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There are spiritual consequences to adultery as well. You see, the perils of adultery are serious and severe. So, that leads us to our third thing then. How, how do we deal with this? How, how do we put parameters around our marriage to keep the marriage sacred? How do we live in a sexually saturated society and we not yield to the temptation to dabble in sex outside of the confines of marriage? Well, we have to look at the Bible for what we call a pattern for fulfillment. You see, if you're fulfilled in your marriage, you're not going to go outside the bonds of that marriage for sex. If you're single and you're fulfilled in your relationship with Christ and you're growing in Christ and you're growing and maturing, that's why it's so important that we keep talking about having your spiritual disciplines and your quiet time and reading your Bible and studying your Bible and hearing what God says to you. It's not just to keep you busy and occupy your mind, but it's to help shape your life for the glory of God. And, and when you are content in your relationship with God, then you are protecting your life. It's a pattern for fulfillment. And it begins in marriage by, first of all, an exclusive commitment. We, we already heard that in Genesis 2. You leave and you cleave and you keep that exclusive commitment. You wear a wedding ring to remind you of the vows of exclusivity that you've taken in marriage. So you make an exclusive commitment. It says if you're married, make your spouse your one and only. Affirm your marriage commitment. Years ago when, when Henry Ford and his wife 
uh, was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, a reporter asking, so what, what's the formula for a successful marriage? And he said, the formula is the same as in a car manufacturing. I stick to one model. Well, in today's culture and society, one model of car is not going to work. But the concept of marriage is correct. You stick to one, one model. That's the one you have vowed to be loyal to for life until death separates you. So work on your relationship with God. No one is immune from the temptation of adultery. Allow God to strengthen you and your marriage day by day. Pursue personal purity. That's one way that we do that, is you make marriage an exclusive commitment. If you're being unfaithful, get out. Break that adulterous relationship. Save your marriage. If you're being tempted, remove yourself from the temptation. Don't flirt outside of marriage, whether you're single or married. Be careful of looks, glances, wayward thoughts. That See, that goes back to those other different forms of, of, of adultery, mental and emotional. If you're single, make a commitment to be pure until you are married. Save that greatest gift for your marriage. Then secondly, multiply your marriage efforts. You know, sometimes the longer, the longer we're married, the more we take it for granted, don't we? I heard about an elderly couple on, on a nice fall evening when it was a little bit chilly and they decided to put a fire in the fireplace and they're sitting beside that fireplace and the lights are low and the man begins to reflect upon their 50 years of marriage or so and he's feeling tender in his heart and a little romantic and he looks at his wife and he says, you know, after 50 years of marriage, I found you tried and true. And she at that age, a little bit hard of hearing, said, I, what? And he says, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. And she says, well, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. (laughs) It's not easy to make one person out of two. But that's what marriage is all about, isn't it? A growing marriage will reduce the pull and attraction of adultery. Let me just throw this in. It might take a little bit longer, but one of the books I have valued for a long time to use in premarital counseling is a book by Willard Harley, a counselor who, who writes a book entitled His Needs, Her Needs. And I point out things. I don't give it to the couples to read because I know they're, they're too moon-eyed and they're just ready for marriage. They're not going to read the whole thing. But I share this with them. I want to show you how different men and women are and what a job it is that God has to bring those two people to become one. Because here, according to Willard Hawley, are the top five needs of most men. Sexual fulfillment, number one. Recreational companionship. An attractive spouse. Domestic support. And admiration. Those are the top five needs of men. Guys, that's pretty much on target, right? Yeah. I see why I'm shaking the head. Yep. That's right. Now, what are the top five needs of women? This is what he's discovered in his work for years in this area. Women need affection, conversation, honesty and openness, 
financial support, and family commitment. Now you look at those lists and there's not a whole lot of similarity between those two lists, do there? That's why married couples need to multiply efforts to make your marriage strong and your commitment to one another. And one of those areas is safe sex. Here's a decision to make. You say, if my mate in life is going to have a wonderful, fantastic, fulfilling love life, it's going to be with me. You make that commitment. And then thirdly, I say you make a commitment to God's standards. That means you agree with God about what he says about sex and marriage. And remember that God's standards have never, never changed and they work. They have stood the test of time. The Bible says that sex is for marriage only not before and not outside of marriage. It's a basic value for life. I remember reading about a conversation a young boy was having, a teenager, with his grandfather. And they got to talking about the, the mores and the values of today's society. And the teenager asked his grandfather, Grandpa, in your day, what, what, what did y'all use for sexual safety? Safe sex. How did you practice that? And his grandfather said, we wore a wedding ring. You wear a wedding ring, keep your marriage sexually pure. You're waiting to wear a married a wedding ring, keep your life sexually pure. That's how you value and keep the marriage tradition sacred. I don't know where this might strike you today. But if you need to make some decisions, God's ready to guide you in those decisions. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes, sometimes you're stern. But we know behind all of that is love. As we hear your words today about marriage and about purity and and sexuality, Help us to take those words, Father, to heart. Help us to be people after your own heart so that we can protect the sacredness of marriage. I pray, Father, you will bless all the people in this church, our youth, our children, singles, young singles, older singles, that they will remain pure in their life until marriage. And then, Father, in marriage, that everyone in marriage would do everything he or she can to build that marriage so that it is protected from adultery. Give us that strength, Father, that comes only from you. In Jesus' name, amen.